Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. A major Russian warship seriously damaged in the Black Sea. The United States sending bigger weapon systems to Ukraine in its latest round of aid. President Biden Tuesday accused Russia of genocide in Ukraine. But what counts as genocide and how is it proven? The suspect in the Brooklyn shooting has been arrested after a 30-hour manhunt. He will face multiple charges, including a federal terrorism offense. Russia has confirmed that one of its major warships in the Black Sea has been evacuated after being seriously damaged. Russia and Ukraine have different versions of what happened. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. Russia said Thursday the flagship of its Black Sea fleet was seriously damaged by an explosion and its crew was evacuated. According to Interfax, Russia's defense ministry said a fire on the Moskva missile cruiser Wednesday caused ammunition to blow up. It didn't say what caused the fire, but Ukraine's military says it was hit by Ukrainian missiles. While Ukraine says the ship sunk, Russia says it's still afloat. NTD's unable to verify either side's claims. The Moskva is the second major ship known to have suffered serious damage since the start of the war. Meanwhile, the Kremlin says Russian leader Vladimir Putin will consider a range of measures to bolster Russia's security if Finland or Sweden join NATO. That is, once the defense ministry presents him with proposals. The Kremlin said the ministry still needed time to put the proposals together. And the Biden administration Wednesday announced an additional $800 million in U.S. military assistance to Ukraine. Urban warfare expert and retired U.S. Army Major John Spencer says this time, instead of smaller things, the U.S. is sending artillery and artillery rounds. In this phase, I think it is a shift in policy to say, absolutely, we recognize that Ukraine needs the ability to fight Russia in the open uh, and, and prevent basically their loss in eastern Ukraine, right? I think this is a shift in policy in recognizing the tools that are needed. The Defense Department says the new security package includes 11 helicopters, 200 armed personnel carriers, and 18 howitzers. And a howitzer is a very large artillery round that when it impacts, it can really hurt a military formation, even inside of a tank. Ukrainians need at this moment. They need to destroy the Russian convoys before they even get to the cities or near to the locations they want to take. It's the first time the United States has sent howitzers. The latest package brings total U.S. aid to Ukraine to more than $2.5 billion, according to President Biden. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Russia is forbidding nearly 400 U.S. lawmakers from entering the country. Russian officials announced they have imposed sanctions on 398 members of Congress. It's retaliation for a similar travel ban the U.S. implemented against 328 members of Russia's parliament. The Biden administration and Ukraine are accusing Russian troops of genocide, a charge Russia denies. What counts as genocide and how to prove it? The term has a strict legal definition and has rarely been proven in court. Let's take a look. The term genocide was cemented in humanitarian law after the Holocaust. The 1948 Genocide Convention defines genocide as crimes committed with intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. 
To establish genocide, prosecutors must first show that the victims were part of a distinct national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. This excludes groups targeted for political beliefs. Ukrainian prosecutors are already investigating alleged Russian crimes. We commenced criminal proceedings on February 24th. As of now, there are more than 4,000 proceedings. There are those which were initially classified as war crimes. Moreover, we have more than 2,000 related crimes, which may be reclassified. The International Criminal Court has jurisdiction over genocide. Three cases so far have met its threshold. The Mur Rouge in Cambodia in the 1970s, which left 1.7 million people dead. The 1994 Rwanda genocide that left 800,000 people dead. And the 1995 Srebrenica massacre in Bosnia that left some 8,000 people dead. Genocide is harder to show than other violations of international humanitarian law, such as war crimes and crimes against humanity, because it requires evidence of specific intent. The U.S. State Department says they'll leave it to international lawyers to determine if there's genocide. Uh, the president also, as you heard, emphasized that it will be the task of international lawyers to determine uh, whether what we're seeing meets that legal threshold of genocide. The, the U.S. has declared seven situations genocide since the 1990s. Bosnia, Rwanda, Iraq, Sudan's Darfur province, ISIS killings, including those against the Yazidi, Myanmar's crackdown on Rohingya Muslims, and the Chinese Communist regime's treatment of Uyghur Muslims. A group called the Ukraine Relief Network took action after seeing thousands of Ukrainian refugees fleeing their homes due to the war. The group's co-founder, Christian Ray Flores, was moved when he learned groups of refugees were running out of food and clothing, with some even being stuck in sub-zero temperatures. He tells us how they offer support to Ukrainians while their homeland is being invaded. We founded this network through these nodes, like just people, community leaders who are trustworthy, who we can wire money to. And they dropped, literally instantly dropped money to the volunteers in the electronic um, wallets, which is amazing. And they can go out and buy food and get some gas to get to the border. Then the next wave was evacuations. It was, uh, we found a bunch of volunteers who had minivans or small buses, and they would just go into, let's say, Kiev, right? and they would ferry out 20, 30 people at a time and take them to a train station or to a village or to uh, somewhere where they can get a bus, for example, to go to the border. So it's sort of several waves of those things that we've been doing, and it's in the hundreds for sure, that uh, the people that we've helped. Over four and a half million Ukrainians have fled their nation. How do you help them resettle? You know, that's a very good question. That's sort of the next phase of of, the, uh, of developing these centers is because what we want to do is we want to offer a safe place. We want to offer a place where people can get some emotional, spiritual support, some clothing, some food. And what we're doing, we're, we're plugging in other organizations, right, that can resettle them, maybe repair their apartment building, maybe find them a place to live. That's why it's called the network, is that we want to not just be us, but be a network of, of organizations that synergistically work together to help refugees uh, get back to normal, whenever that is. The UN refugee chief fears a long, drawn-out, more localized conflict in the future. Are you in it for the long haul? Absolutely, absolutely. I, uh, uh, you know, I grew up there. I grew up in Russia. I lived in Ukraine, and 
I know for a fact this is going to be a very, very long conflict and that an even longer um, uh, period to just get back to normal. I mean, whole cities have been destroyed. This is literally the biggest humanitarian catastrophe since, since World War II, so we're definitely staying. And how can people help out through your organization? Uh, thank you for asking. You can just go to the ukrainereliefnetwork.org website and you'll see stories, uh, you'll see um, the people that we help. You can just press a button, you can text to give. You can also follow us on our Facebook uh, group, uh, Ukraine Relief Network, and you'll see just remarkable from the ground, everyday updates of people we've helped. Thousands of displaced Ukrainians are arriving in one southeastern city after fleeing the fighting in eastern Ukraine. At one aid center there, dogs are helping children cope with the trauma of war. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Yevse, a black and white spaniel, waits patiently as kids gather around to pet him every day. He's part of a dog therapy session in eastern Ukraine, where canines help children adjust to a life after war. It is important for them because a child's psyche is very vulnerable to the war, which is going on right now. They are very anxious because of it. Some children are very scared, and we help them to come out of this state of mind. Yevse is one of 28 dogs at a humanitarian aid center in Zaporizhia. Here, children draw, sing nursery rhymes, play with dogs, and receive psychological support. We work here together with volunteers who are pedagogy students. We work with children while their parents are busy with paperwork. Our main task is to stabilize the children, help them recover, help them cope with that stressful experience, acutely stressful experience. Some 2,600 civilians have been evacuated from the front lines on Tuesday. Another dog, Milo, has arrived at the same humanitarian center after traveling hundreds of miles from eastern Ukraine to flee bombardment. His 20-year-old owner, Daniel Savchenko, said the trip lasted seven hours. He's definitely scared because even, even a small move into the wet, which takes like 10 minutes in our native city, is a very big stress for him. And especially, of course, traveling through all the posts, uh, like 200 kilometers, not that much. In a normal time, it would take like two, three hours. But today, it took us uh, seven hours. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has killed thousands and displaced millions. Moscow says its actions are aimed at destroying Ukraine's military capabilities and capturing so-called dangerous nationalists. But Ukraine and the West say Russia launched an unprovoked war of aggression. On Thursday, Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister Irina Vereshuk said nine humanitarian corridors had been agreed upon from the besieged city of Mariupol. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The last animals from an eco-park in Kharkiv began their journeys to a new home as the city's mayor said bombing in the area had increased significantly. Video released on Wednesday by Mikhailo Lysenko shows two bears in cages being loaded onto the back of a truck before beginning their journey. Lysenko wrote alongside the video that their mission had been accomplished and all animals from the Kharkiv eco-park had now been removed. Feldman Eco Park said the animals had to be evacuated because they were located very close to the war zone and had been under constant shelling and bombing from the Russian military since the war began. The Eco Park said it has been relocating its animals after three staff members were killed by bombs and dozens of others were wounded when they tried to feed the animals. In addition, almost 100 animals were killed while 
some trying to escape, according to the park. Just ahead, Michigan police release video of the fatal shooting of a motorist after a struggle. News of the shooting has already set off protests. Actor Cuba Gooding Jr. pleads guilty to forcible touching and admits guilt in two more incidents. More on that after the break here on NTD News. Billionaire Elon Musk has offered to buy Twitter for about $41 billion in cash. He says the social media company, which he's often criticized, needs to go private to see effective changes. Musk rejected an offer to join Twitter's board earlier this week after disclosing his stake in the company. Analysts said that signaled his intention to take over the firm. Since a board seat would have limited his stake to just under 15%. Musk's offer price was $54.20 per share, which was disclosed in a regulatory finding today. The total deal value was calculated based on about 760 million shares outstanding, according to Refinitiv data. Musk said in a letter to Twitter chairman Brett Taylor that this was his best and final offer. If not accepted, he would need to reconsider his position as shareholder, he wrote. Twitter did not respond to a request for comment. After a 30-hour manhunt, Brooklyn shooting suspect Frank James is under arrest. He's been charged with a federal terrorism offense. Here are the details. U-Haul records show that Brooklyn shooting suspect Frank James rented a U-Haul in Philadelphia on April 11th at about 2 p.m. Surveillance cameras show the U-Haul entering Brooklyn at about 4 a.m. the following day, several hours before the attack that injured over 20 people. Transit system surveillance captured him entering the subway wearing a hard hat and construction-style vest. James was previously arrested nine times in New York and three times in New Jersey on charges of criminal trespassing, burglary, and disorderly conduct. The FBI says he has never been investigated by the Bureau. Investigators have looked into the gun used by James in Tuesday's shooting. They found it was legally purchased in Ohio. NYPD chief of detectives James Essig explained that James was able to legally purchase the gun because there was no felonies on his record. In a court filing, FBI Special Agent George Alvarez said the serial number on the Glock 17 pistol was purposely defaced. Meanwhile, authorities investigated the fireworks the suspect left at the scene. They were bought from the Phantom Fireworks showroom in Caledonia, Wisconsin. The showroom is now cooperating with further investigation. More investigations are now underway into the suspect's motive for the crime. He allegedly posted multiple videos on social media about race and violence and his own mental illness. His arrest came after a 30-hour search with the help of tips from residents. It's also been reported that James called the police himself to report his location after seeing himself on the news. He was at a McDonald's on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Prosecutors said James will face multiple charges on top of the federal terrorism offense. Police in Grand Rapids, Michigan released three videos of a police officer shooting a man dead. The two men were fighting in the rain on a suburban front lawn following a traffic stop. The videos show the fatal shooting of 26-year-old Patrick Leoya during a traffic stop last week. On Wednesday, City Police Chief Eric Winstrom refused to name the man who was involved in the shooting. He did say that the officer has been placed on administrative leave and that the Michigan State Police are investigating. Meanwhile, protesters filled the streets of Grand Rapids saying an injustice was committed against a black man. Prosecutors in Kent County told CNN that they will decide on possible criminal charges once the investigation is complete. 
The shooting occurred on April 4th when Leoya was first pulled over by an officer with suspicions about his license plate. The videos released Wednesday captured different angles of the struggle that followed from the dashboard of the officer's police car as well as the officer's body cam footage and video from a neighbor's surveillance camera. The Biden administration agreed to amend some park police and secret service policies. That's part of a partial settlement reached with Black Lives Matter protesters who were removed from an area near the White House in 2020. The U.S. Park Police and the Secret Service agreed to update and clarify their policies governing demonstrations and to implement the policy changes within 30 days. The Justice Department said the changes are to settle claims in four civil lawsuits brought by demonstrators. They say their rights were violated in Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. in June 2020. The lawsuits alleged that federal agencies used unreasonable force to enable a photo op of former President Donald Trump outside a historic church near the White House. A U.S. government watchdog rejected that claim and said police dispersed protesters as part of a plan made earlier in the day for a contractor to install temporary fencing. The park police said protesters became violent and officers found caches of makeshift weapons in the area. Policy changes within law enforcement include more specific requirements for visible identification of officers, limits on the use of non-lethal force, and procedures to facilitate safe crowd dispersal. The U.S. government did not admit any wrongdoing as part of the settlement. Democratic Party officials approved a plan Wednesday that could shake up the presidential primary calendar. The big unknown is which states will get to hold their primaries first in 2024. The new plan does away with the current traditional set of early states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. The updated process would prioritize more racially diverse battleground states that hold primaries, not caucuses. States would apply for early primaries, and party officials would pick up to five to go before Super Tuesday. Those four traditional early states can apply to keep their places. However, Iowa's spot would be especially threatened, in part because the largely white state is no longer a battleground. Also, it is required by state law to hold caucuses. State parties must submit applications by June 3rd. The Rules Committee will decide in July, and final approval is in August or September. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is staying true to his word. The first bus of illegal immigrants showed up in D.C. on Wednesday. And there's more on the way. What happened after they arrived? And what's the plan for them next? NTD's Melina Wisecup was there when they arrived. Here's what she found out. Just hours after arriving in Washington, D.C., a group of illegal immigrants is headed off to different U.S. cities. The people boarding this bus were headed to a Catholic charity in D.C., who's helping them buy tickets to travel to their final destinations. Most of them do have family or friends in the place where they really want to go. Uh, We're happy to help them if they want to stay here. Most are choosing to move on. And so we're helping to buy tickets. We bought them food. They were hungry when they arrived. Uh, We have the gospel mandate to welcome the stranger. One of the volunteers told NTD that they're helping because the city says they want no part of this. It's unclear if Texas's governor has the legal authority to transport these busloads of migrants to the U.S. Capitol. And the ones that took up Governor Abbott's offer came to D.C. voluntarily. 
after arriving in Texas just yesterday. When we got to Texas, we had nothing because they had taken everything. We heard there was help and a bus to Washington, and there would be someone to facilitate travel because in Texas there is no help. Right on this street is where that first bus of illegal immigrants was dropped off. Earlier this morning, about 30 of them were dropped off right here. And this location is quite interesting. Not only is it right at the doorstep of the U.S. Capitol, but it's also right in front of the Fox News building and the NBC building. And right down the street is Union Station, a popular traveling area here in D.C., where many of those immigrants went to kind of wait and figure out their next steps. We went and spoke to some of them to find out what their plans are now. I want to go to Miami. We don't have anyone to receive us there. We don't know anyone. We are alone. He's one of the few that are headed to Miami tonight. About 18 others stayed in D.C. with friends or family. Some now headed to New York. And they tell us their journey was long and rough. In Mexico, they robbed us of everything. The cartels and the police. They took our money, our things. My family stayed in Monterey, as it is difficult to travel without money. I decided to travel ahead and work to send for my family, because my wife is there, my five-year-old son. We started the journey on January 7th. We've been walking, walking, not in a plane or anything, walking little by little. The point of sending them to D.C., Governor Abbott says, is to force the federal government to deal firsthand with the border crisis. This is only the first bus. Governor Greg Abbott says there's now another bus en route to D.C. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. A district judge rules a Texas law from 2001 that compels citizens of the United States to pay a higher college tuition rate than illegal immigrants is unlawful. Under current Texas law, a student who lives in Texas for three years and graduates from a Texas high school is entitled to in-state tuition rates. Anyone who fails to meet those residency criteria must pay higher out-of-state tuition rates, regardless of whether that person is a U.S. citizen. Young Conservatives of Texas says in some situations, this tuition scheme makes U.S. citizens from states other than Texas subject to higher tuition than students who continue to live in the state illegally. But a federal law from 1996 specifically bans residency-based college tuition benefits that don't take a student's citizenship into account. Arguing that these state and federal statutes conflict with one another, the Young Conservatives in 2020 sued the University of North Texas on behalf of a group of its members. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis warns illegal immigrants not to try and travel to his state. That's after the group of illegal immigrants bussed from Texas to Washington, D.C., said that they planned to travel to Miami. DeSantis's office told Fox News that illegal immigrants who try to travel to Florida will struggle with a life that is not easy. The statement said the state will uphold immigration laws even if the federal government and other states do not. The bus carrying a group of 23 illegal immigrants is part of the Texas governor's strategy to respond to the Biden administration's decision to end Title 42 expulsions. Title 42 allows Border Patrol agents to expel most illegal immigrants for posing a health risk amid the COVID-19 pandemic. The policy will officially end in May. The Texas governor says the voluntary busing scheme is in response to overwhelming illegal immigration. Actor Cuba Gooding Jr. pleaded guilty to one misdemeanor count of forcible touching on Wednesday. 
This was part of a plea deal, sparing him any immediate jail time. The actor was charged with forcibly kissing a woman at a New York nightclub in September 2018, according to a Manhattan district attorney spokesperson. In a statement, the district attorney's office said Gooding also admitted to subjecting two other women to non-consensual physical contact in 2018 and 2019. In court, the New York Times later quoted Gooding apologizing for, quote, making anybody feel inappropriately touched. Under the plea agreement, the actor can plead guilty to a lesser violation of harassment if he continues court-ordered counseling for six months. A representative and lawyer for the actor could not immediately be reached for comment. Gooding has faced over a dozen groping and misconduct accusations stretching back over two decades. Just hours after the plea deal was announced, a Manhattan federal judge rejected Gooding's bid to dismiss a $6 million civil lawsuit which accused the actor of rape back in 2013. Gooding denies the allegations. A Northern California woman is admitting that she faked her own kidnapping more than five years ago. The search for 39-year-old Sherry Papini of Redding set off a three-week search until she resurfaced on Thanksgiving Day in 2016. But federal prosecutors alleged in early March that she actually was staying with a former boyfriend nearly 600 miles away in Southern California. They said she injured herself to back up her false statements. Her attorney, William Portanova, confirmed that she signed a plea agreement. A spokesperson for federal prosecutors said they can't confirm the plea deal until something is on the public record. It's a sight you probably don't see too often. Take a look at this footage captured in Florida. It happened on Sunday in Fort Pierce. You can see a man run up to the window of this house, throw something inside, and then flames start shooting out of the window. Police say it was a Molotov cocktail. Then you can see him run out of the frame and another Molotov cocktail gets tossed over the roof before rolling and landing at the side of the house. The family of the homeowner says there were three people inside when all of this happened. Luckily, they're doing okay, but police are trying to find the man. Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson says the state has reached a settlement with e-cigarette giant Juul Labs. The company agreed to a variety of reforms to prevent underage use and sales. Under this agreement, Juul is required to send secret shoppers to conduct no fewer than 25 compliance checks per month at Washington-based Juul retailers for two years. Juul must conduct these checks across all 39 Washington counties. During these checks, secret shoppers must confirm that retailers here in Washington State are complying with federal and state requirements to verify a purchaser's age. Ferguson filed a consumer protection lawsuit in September 2020. It said the country's largest e-cigarette company targeted underage consumers and deceived consumers about the addictive nature of its product. Juul Labs admitted no wrongdoing in settling the case. In an email after the announcement, the company called it another step in our ongoing effort to reset our company and resolve issues from the past. It's the fourth such settlement with states by the company within the past year. Up next, Amazon announces it will add a 5% fuel and inflation surcharge to fees it charges third-party sellers who use the company's fulfillment services. Stay tuned for more in just a moment.
Amazon says it's adding new fees for some of its third-party sellers. The 5% fuel and inflation surcharge will be tacked onto the price for using the e-commerce giant's fulfillment services. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Amazon's latest fee hike follows one announced in November and took effect in January. In a notice sent to sellers Wednesday, Amazon said its costs had gone up since the beginning of the pandemic. This is just the latest in a, in a huge series of fee increases that Amazon has imposed on the independent businesses that have to rely on its platform. The company said it had absorbed costs whenever possible. Federal data released Tuesday showed inflation jumped 8.5% in March, its fastest pace in more than 40 years. Gasoline prices have rocketed 48% in the past 12 months, but some say Amazon was taking advantage of its position. Amazon now controls access to such a huge share of the online market that you know, any business really that makes or sells anything, they have to go through Amazon in order to reach consumers. And you know, that means that Amazon effectively is like a big toll booth for these businesses. Amazon's third-party marketplace is a huge part of its business. It has about 2 million sellers, and more than half the goods sold on Amazon.com come from these sellers. Last year, sellers paid Amazon about $103 billion in fees, which made up about 22% of the company's revenue. It's hard to line up the idea that this is a, a move that is really being, that they really have to do because of costs when you see this extraordinary profit. Amazon is expected to release its earnings report from the first three months of this year on April 28th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Google is doubling down on office space. The tech giant says it plans to invest $9.5 billion in offices and data centers in the U.S. this year. That's up from more than $7 billion last year. The move comes as many of its employees are returning to the workplace three days a week after two years of being fully remote. CEO Sundar Pichai wrote about it in a blog post. He said that even with people working in offices less, Investing in campuses still helps its product and quality of life for workers. The company plans to open a new office in Atlanta and expand office space in Austin and New York. At the beginning of the pandemic, many analysts believed companies would try to save money by shrinking office spaces as more employees worked from home. Automakers from all around the globe are coming to New York City to show off their new models at the International Auto Show. The exhibit is not open to the public yet, but NTD's Arian Pastar gives us a sneak peek. If you like cars, this is the place to be, the International Auto Show right here in Manhattan. Right now, I'm sitting in a 670 horsepower Corvette, 0 to 60 in less than 3 seconds. And there are many more interesting cars here at the show. The new Corvette, which doesn't have a price tag yet, sure has its charm. But so do older cars, like these ones from the 90s, for example. The show also has rally cars and retro-looking race cars. This one has quite some sound to it. How much gas does it use? No, it's, no, it's zero because it's electric. Fully electric. So as you can see here, it's lifting the hood for us. No gas engine inside, fully electric car. The sound of the car and the vibration is added to give the driver a more realistic feeling. Some brands are going all out to showcase their cars, adding a theater background and a stage. You can also test ride some of the cars to see how fast they accelerate or sit behind the steering wheel of a driving simulator with moving seats. 
You can also try out one of their electric bicycles or other two-wheelers. In terms of a car for the whole family, I was told some people like cars that go well for the city and for the outdoors. Roof rack actually is rated to sport 700 pounds uh, when the car is parked, which means that you can put a roof tent on it and then you can go up and sleep uh, You know, when you go camping. You don't have to be on the ground or in the mud or anything. The show will open to the public this weekend and is going to run through April 24th here at the Javits Center in Manhattan. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. The current outbreak of avian flu won't create a shortage of eggs this Easter, but Americans will be paying more for them at the grocery store. The Consumer Price Index shows the price of eggs is up nearly 14% over the last year, and it's expected to keep climbing. The American Farm Bureau says this outbreak of avian flu is likely worse than the last major one that started in 2014. 50 million chickens and turkeys died as a result of highly pathogenic avian influenza in that outbreak. So far, the virus has been detected on farms in 25 U.S. states and in wild birds in 31 more states. Right now, the CDC says the risk of the bird flu infecting humans is low. High-tech coffee. Panera Bread is testing out an artificial intelligence-based coffee monitoring system. The system, CookRite Coffee, is from a California company called Miso Robotics. The goal? Quality and efficiency. The company says the system monitors coffee metrics such as volume, temperature, and time data and uses predictive analytics aimed at creating the perfect cup of coffee. The system eliminates the need for manual checks of coffee urns and is aimed at helping workers brew coffee at just the right time so the coffee stays fresh and hot. And Panera wants the system to free up workers to spend more time helping customers. Next up, COVID lockdowns have disrupted lives of Hong Kong residents and ever-changing government policies are adding to the uncertainty. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and supply chain disruptions add to rising inflation across Asia and businesses in Seoul, Tokyo and Beijing deal with increased costs. Find out more here on NTD News. A bipartisan group of U.S. congressmen landed in Taiwan Thursday night local time for a one-day jaunt. The delegation, led by Senator Lindsey Graham, were met by Taiwan's foreign minister. Among the others on the trip, Senators Bob Menendez, Ben Sass, and Rob Portman. They're expected to meet with Taiwanese officials, including the president, on Friday before returning to the U.S. A congressional delegation to Asia was postponed last week after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tested positive for COVID-19. Residents are struggling with the fifth wave of COVID-19. Uncertainty and the authorities' ever-changing policies have added to the woes. Here's the latest in Hong Kong. Hong Kong's government has had strict social distancing policies in place since January to deal with the Omicron surge, and some businesses that were already forced to shut down are trying to navigate the rules. An eyebrow salon owner said the pandemic also affected her two-year-old son. Not long after his birth, he has had to wear a face mask, and afterwards, he hasn't been able to go to class 
and now he's at the nursery class level. He relies on Zoom. But the parks outside are closed, and he has few opportunities to meet friends and relatives and communicate. So his speech is developing rather slowly, and he is scared of strangers. A frontline nurse working for the municipal hospital authority said he went through some very difficult times. The space is very limited in accident emergency department, and the number of death tolls is very shocking. As far as I remember, and most colleagues may experience, uh, you may perform the CPR or the resuscitation surrounded by dead bodies. It is very sad to see that. A bar owner said her business closed for a total of one year due to ever-changing restrictions. But she still had to pay rent and support her staff. The government are not doing anything to help us. Previously, the revenue was tens of thousands a day. And now the bar is shut. Why can't we do it like foreign countries and live with the virus? It is considered as an endemic disease in other places. Hong Kong's COVID-19 infection rate has dropped compared to the previous month. The government is gradually easing measures with plans to resume certain face-to-face -face classes in schools. Russia's invasion of Ukraine plus supply chain disruptions have partly led to inflation soaring across Asia. Business owners in Seoul, Tokyo and Beijing all say they're feeling the pressure. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. In South Korea, the cost of making kimchi has gone up for Chue Sanwa. Prices of ingredients have all gone up. For example, I was able to make kimchi with 10 heads of cabbages. But now I can only make it with 7 heads at the same cost. However, I'm selling it at the same price. If it goes on like this, I won't be able to keep this business. So I think I may have to raise the price a bit. In South Korea, consumer prices rose at their fastest pace in more than a decade in March. The consumer price index for March rose 4.1 percent from a year earlier, the fastest increase since December 2011. In Tokyo, Yusuke Iwai had to raise prices of his udon noodles by 40 cents, up to 14 percent from April 1st to compensate for an unprecedented surge in ingredients costs, from wheat flour to cooking oil. Our business is to offer udon noodles at an affordable price of about a few hundred yen, two to three dollars. So raising 50 yen, 40 cents, is a really big deal. But in order to continue what I want to do, I had to raise the price a little bit. It's a very painful decision. Core consumer prices in Japan's capital rose at the fastest pace in more than two years in March. Many analysts expect core consumer inflation to accelerate near 2 percent in coming months. Ma Hong first opened a hot pot restaurant in downtown Beijing in November 2021. Prices of ingredients he needs have also jumped, from meat, vegetables, to cooking oil. It's squeezing his profit margin by nearly 20 percent. For example, the price of beef tripe was budgeted at around 80 yuan, $12.50 per kilo when we first opened. Now the price has gone up to 124 $19.50 per kilo but I'm still selling at the same price. We sell out at the same price as before. Also, with the impact of the pandemic, everyone is hanging in there. It is the same all over Beijing. We are not the only restaurant suffering. Consumer inflation will likely pick up to 2.2% in 2022 from 0.9% in 2021, before easing slightly to 2.1% in 2023. That's according to a recent Reuters poll. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. 
Stay tuned tomorrow for part two of our coverage on inflation in Asia. And coming up, magical bluebells are blooming in a forest near the Belgian capital, leading visitors into a dreamlike fairy tale world. All that and more when we return. You may be familiar with eggnog at Christmas, but what about egg liqueur for Easter? This thick yellow drink is made from eight egg yolks and is a traditional Easter liqueur in Germany. The specialty holiday drink has been made since the 1900s, with the original recipe coming from Brazil. Eggnog actually originated in Brazil, in South America, in the 17th century. They made a drink out of fully ripe avocado fruits, which are slightly yellowish, an alcoholic drink. It was called avocado. The whole thing is put into a bowl without the alcohol first and heated in a water bath so that the egg doesn't falter. And then we drizzle in the alcohol very carefully, little by little. While it is a high-calorie drink, egg liqueur is becoming more popular even outside of the Easter season. A fairy tale scene unfolds near the Belgian capital of Brussels. There, clumps of beautiful bluebells carpet an enchanted forest. Let's take a look. In Belgium's Holly Forest, blooming purple bluebells created a sea of fantasy, attracting groups of admirers early at dawn. Yeah, we did come early, actually. We uh, woke up around five, just to make sure to have the best of uh, sun, uh, sunrise, and uh, that's why we're here early, exactly. The sun shines on the blossoms through the mist and foliage of the beech trees. Photographers recorded this ethereal view, calling it a comfort in tough times. It is an outstanding and magical place because whenever we come, there is an amazing atmosphere. The sunrise was truly beautiful this morning, and we know this offers the opportunity to take great photos and decorate our house. We have all this blue and all these colors. With the transition between the hyacinths and the small wood anemones, that will soon go away. If we have a morning fog or shafts of light, it is just wonderful. It's a fairy tale forest. <laughs> Every April, visitors from all over the world flock to admire the magical scene. These blossoms will stay for seven to ten days. Still to come, a movie featuring an unusual World War II spy story is set to release soon. It will tell how British intelligence officers deceive the Nazis and disguise the Allies' plan to invade Sicily. We'll have more for you after this short break. NASA's Hubble Space Telescope has located what scientists believe is the largest comet ever seen by astronomers. The estimated diameter of comet Bernardinelli-Bernstein is about 80 miles across, making it larger than the state of Rhode Island. That beats the previous record by 20 miles. Judging by its nucleus, it is about 50 times larger than an average comet and weighs an incredible 100,000 times more. Although it appears to be blue in color through the space telescope, scientists believe the surface is actually blacker than coal. Fortunately, astronomers say the giant icy rock poses no risk to Earth. A movie about redemption and a second chance at life hits theaters on Wednesday. The director spoke about the message 
of encouragement and second chances that she hopes audiences will feel from the story. I figured it out. Yeah, seventh time's a charm. Father Stu is a biopic about a boxer turned priest after surviving a near-death experience. Film director Rosalind Ross spoke with the Epic Times about her experience in making the movie. You know, it was a, it was a very introspective experience um, going on this, trying to go on the journey with Stu as best I could. Um, and it was a real lesson in humility and surrender. And I think I, I owe him a great deal for teaching me a little bit about those things. Actor Mark Wahlberg stars in the role of Stuart Long. The film tells the real-life story of Long, who was a boxer and an actor. After Long got what he felt was a second chance at life, he spent the remainder of his life working as a priest. He was really just a guy who was searching for purpose in his life and trying to find the hope in a, in a hopeless situation. I'm praying for you, Bill. Don't you dare! You're violating my rights. Mel Gibson joins Wahlberg in the cast, playing Stu's father, Bill. Ross said she hopes audience members can feel the same inspiration and self-redemption that Stu brought to people around him. If it could only accomplish one thing, I hope it would be imparting the message to people that it's never too late to change or to redeem yourself. Father Stu hit theaters on Wednesday. The release was set to fall during Holy Week. Cast members of Operation Mincemeat attended the London premiere of the movie. The upcoming movie tells the story of a real-life Allied spy operation against Nazi Germany during World War II. Let's take a look. British actors Colin Firth and Matthew McFadden will play two intelligence officers in the new World War II deception drama Operation Mincemeat. It's based on a true and truly unusual spy story. Film is set in 1943 when the Allies were planning an invasion of Italy's Sicily Island. The story is about speculation and guesswork and filling in gaps. And of course, it's about a meticulous attempt to tell a truthful story that is in fact a pack of lies. Uh, you know, it's the definition of disinformation. So um, in a way that both liberates you in filmmaking terms, not, not to uh, artificially change the story, but to frame the story in a particular way to maximize its impact. The Allies must disguise their plan to invade Sicily and convince the Nazis they will be landing elsewhere. One of the intelligence officers comes up with a risky decoy involving a dead man and forged documents. His team is tasked with ensuring the success of the operation with the hope to alter the course of the war. I think the thing that took me most by surprise is that these people who had so much to lose and the consequences of their decisions were so enormous were able to be free thinking enough to come up with this ludicrous idea and then carry it through with such detail and such care and, uh, and that we're here in a free land because of it. Actress Kelly McDonald, who also stars in the movie, says she finds the story hard to believe even after making the movie. Well, the whole story just, I, I didn't know, and I'd never heard about it before. And, um, and every, every part of the story is just so mind-boggling that 
each step they had to get right and that had to work. It, it, you can't believe it. It's bonkers. Everyone keeps saying bonkers. That's the word of the day. Operation Mince Meat is set for release in the UK on April 15th and it will start streaming on Netflix in select countries on May 11th. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email on screen. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. Thank you.